You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have one, there should be one located underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have one, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. If you have a Bible um, and, and are able to, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16 says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I just want to reiterate, thank you for coming, especially uh, if it's your first time. We just want to say we're so glad you made us a part of your weekend. Uh, we are in a series called A Providential People, like Ty just said, um, and we're really just talking about the church, both the Big C Universal Church and the local church, and you know who are we, and uh, what are what are we called to be up to uh, in the earth at this time. So. Uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want to follow up on last week, and, and I, I told you guys uh, a couple weeks ago that we're going to be spending four weeks starting last week, so we're in week two, of just these uh, few verses here um, in the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus gives his disciples in the most famous sermon that he ever preached, these identity markers about who they are, uh, not just individually, although I do believe there's an individual responsibility and application here, but also who they are collectively, being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so last week we talked about, well, what, what does it mean? What does he mean by us being the salt of the earth? And, and how do we live that out? How do we apply that truth? This morning, what I'd really like to do is focus on the warning that he gives. Because Jesus gives two warnings here on the back end of salt and light. That warning with salt is, if salt has lost its savor or it's lost its saltiness, then how shall it be restored? That it is now good for nothing and it will be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so I want to focus on when we lose or abandon our identity, what happens? And then how do we avoid that at all costs? So when we lose our saltiness, what happens according to Jesus? And then how do we avoid doing that? Because it sounds like a, a bad idea. So if you will, bow your heads with me. I'd love to pray and just ask the Spirit to speak to us through his word. Father, we humbly come before you. How grateful we are that we not only get to get together, but we're able to get together freely and openly. We're able to worship you, to open your word, that we don't have to go to our own senses or sensibilities to find truth but that you've graciously provided truth for us in the revelatory, matchless, holy scriptures. And so now we ask, would you now send your spirit that we might not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Help us to understand and to know you through your word. 
And we do pray according to Jesus' parable of the sower that you would find fallow ground or cultivated soil in the soil of our hearts so that it might yield a 30, a 60, and a 100-fold harvest to your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's read it word for word. I just kind of quoted it, uh, paraphrased, but let's start in verse 13, chapter number five. Here's what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth, identity statement. This is who you are, and this is who you are, like we talked about last week, totally not, not on the basis of your own behaviors, but this is who we are because of who Christ is and because Christ is in us. It's amazing, isn't it? You are the salt of the earth. This is your identity given to you freely as a gift, as I've imputed my righteousness to you, as I've given you my, my own very own life, my blood shed to cover all of your sin. This is who you are. You're the salt of the earth. And then he says this, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything. That's pretty harsh, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Have you ever been called a good for nothing? <laughs> Hopefully not by your parents or anything, you know? This is what he says here. In the Old Testament, there's actually, I always underline it when I find it, uh, there's always these um, writings from either Moses or Samuel when they talk about uh, crowds of men who are just causing trouble. Um, it calls them worthless men. I'm always like, that's so intense. Like, it's true, but that's a mean thing to say, isn't it? It's like, have you ever, if you've never been called worthless before, you've probably never been in sports. But if you do something wrong, your coach will say that, you are worthless, All right. And that's ultimately what Jesus says here. He says that the salt that's lost its taste, that's lost its saltiness, is no longer good for nothing, but it gets thrown out. So what does he mean by that? I mean, it is tough, and I want to say that's a tough warning. And Jesus is no stranger to tough warnings. Very often in the New Testament, Jesus will say, the, say things. Even in the Sermon on the Mount itself, as you get towards the back end, I don't know if you've ever read chapter 7. You guys remember the story of building your house on the rock? And so, so right before that, he talks about this guy who will show up one day, and he's got all of these religious actions. He's done all the right things in his life. He's felt like he's even cast out demons in the name of Christ, and he'll be knocking on the door of heaven, and that the door of heaven will open, and he'll say, here I am, Lord, look at all that I've done, and that Jesus' response will be, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. It's like, oh, that is an intense warning. Jesus basically saying that we could be about the business of tons of religious action and still never even have a relationship with him. Jesus is not a stranger of tough warnings. And I want you to catch that this text oftentimes is used as mostly flowery, your salt and your light, you know, and then we talk about, this is a tough warning about losing saltiness. If salt loses its properties and identity, what are we to do about it? And Jesus even asks that rhetorical question, which seems even more scary. Jesus says, what happens when salt loses its saltiness is we throw it out the door and it becomes trampled and ignored as its purpose has been lost. The church is called to be this, like last week we talked about this, preservative, life-giving, healing presence in the world. This world is decaying and devolving. But if the church is not up to that business of preserving and life-giving and healing, then what is the church? If the church loses or abandons this purpose, then the result, as Jesus predicted here, would be three things. We would be disregarded, we would be disrespected, and we would ultimately be discarded. Ultimately, the whole world would become indifferent to us. Now, that word's important for providence because whenever we built out our mission statement, what do we want to do? We want to make the gospel unignorable, made up word that now apparently has found its way into the dictionary. So that's one addition to the dictionary we can celebrate, okay, over the last year. But... 
Nonetheless, why do we choose that word unignorable? Because we recognize that the church is not necessarily, there's no antagonism, or for the most part, there's not as much antagonism in our area towards the church as much as there is indifference to the gospel message. And indifference is not better. In some ways, it could be even worse. So when followers of Jesus abandon their purpose, maybe a better way to put it, they become the punchline on late night TV far more often then they become the place of hope, the place of healing, the people of wisdom, and the place of guidance. You guys found that to be true? Billy Graham was the arguably the most influential minister of the 20th century. His crusades reached millions of people. He preached the gospel in, there's a big debate over how many countries, as, as at least 99 different countries in his lifetime. I read this article about Billy Graham showing up to Australia to go through and do crusades in Australia. And by the time he was done in Australia, it was said that two-thirds of the population had showed up to his crusades. That's incredible to think about. He met with every U.S. president, listen to this, from Harry Truman until Barack Obama. Now, if you don't know Harry Truman in your history books, from the nuclear bomb until the day that he died, he met with every U.S. president, praying with those presidents advising those presidents at times in times of great racial strife in his new york crusade he met with dr martin luther king which seems like a no-brainer for us today this was definitely controversial at the time he prayed with them they discussed with them they never even wholeheartedly agreed on what tactics to use and yet they found unity around the gospel these men met together that racism was sinful and evil Billy Graham, listen to this one, was almost exclusively given permission to breach the Iron Curtain starting in 1978 and to start preaching the gospel behind the communist lines. That's incredible to think about. He even confronted communist leaders of the time about their religious persecution and their policies that would curtail religious freedom, Billy Graham would sit in front of communist leaders behind the Iron Curtain as he's preaching the gospel and confront them about this. He represents a powerful, life-giving, society-healing, cultural-shaping influence for Christ. You can think whatever you want about Billy Graham, about his theological leanings. You could say whatever you would like to say. But in many ways, he represented the Big C Church, and he most certainly was the salt to the earth. I mean... And when you look at his life, I watch, he has he's a really good documentary on Netflix uh, about Billy Graham. I would encourage you to watch it. It's incredible. You know, it's hard to not be moved by his life. But I juxtapose Billy, Gra- Billy Graham and the way that he's viewed today versus the way that he was viewed in his actual lifetime. And the only thing that most of the generation currently that knows about Billy Graham is connected with Vice President Mike Pence and the fact that Mike, Mike Pence followed the Billy Graham rule, which was deemed to be ridiculous. And the Billy Graham rule was this, very simply this. Billy Graham's rule was that he would never be found alone with a woman that was not his wife, ever. That was his rule. So he wouldn't ride in elevators with a woman that was not his wife. He wouldn't ride in limousines. He wouldn't have one-on-one meetings with closed doors. And the reason that Billy Graham would do this is simply for integrity's sake. So he never wanted to even give the semblance of impropriety. And Mike Pence had basically agreed that he was going to carry that too. And it became a big firestorm. And, and, and the sad thing that as Billy Graham was waning in his final years and dying, that most of our culture was only focused on how repressive this ideology was from Billy Graham. And it, what it shows is it juxtaposes the, the salt of the earth that the church is meant to be and then how Christianity is now viewed in our culture. 
And I think that the application point is really simple. We must avoid losing our saltiness at all costs. Amen? It's just, we do not want to have the result of being trampled underfoot. And it seems obvious in this text that that's what Jesus is really getting at. So the question becomes, how do we do it? And really, that's where I want to spend my time here. Now, here's two things I want to do. I want to go to an Old Testament text that, honestly, I didn't even intend when we planned out the series to go to. But as, we were, as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought, wow, this is really a really helpful text to kind of frame everything else that I want to say. Some of the things that I'm going to say this morning, you probably have heard over the course of the last six to eight weeks, maybe even since October. And they've just been trickling through thoughts that I have had from the scriptures regarding why the church has lost its saltiness and how, where we need to repent. So some of this will be a little bit of, if you've been around for a little while, be a little bit of review. But I really think that this text is key to understanding what does the Lord expect of us in a crazy and divisive time. So before we do that, though, let's go to this story. You can keep your thumb in Matthew or, or not because we're, we're only in this first verse. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 19, and I want to read this story from the early patriarchs. Genesis chapter 19. It's a left-hand turn in your Bible, first book of your Bible. Okay. Now, most of you are going to be familiar with this story, but we don't often come back to it and read it. There's two things about the story. Number one, it's very popular. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which we know Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by God with sulfur and raining down fire. And, but it's centered around a family. And, and, and it's centered around this family, Lot and his wife and his kids and his sons-in-laws. And, and this is a really interesting story because it mixes the supernatural with the most carnal and, and obvious like example of uh, brokenness in our world. Like at one sense, we read this and we think this is almost too unbelievable to, to believe that it actually happened because angels are involved and, and supernatural destruction. And then on the flip side, when you read it, you're like, this is the most succinct understanding of how broken our world is. It makes a lot of sense that that might happen. So I want to read through this and kind of think, well, how does this tie with what Jesus is saying of us being the salt of the earth? So we're going to start Genesis chapter 19, starting in verse 1. So remember, we're picking this up after Abraham has had this conversation with God. God tells Abram, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is the cousin of Abram. And basically, they had grown to be too big of a people together. Lot, the cousin of Abraham, and Abraham and his, and his uh, servants and all of their cattle, they said, well, listen, we need to split ways because there started to become squabbles between the servants of Abraham and the servants of Lot. And so Abraham, being a righteous man, he tells his cousin, he says, listen, look out. Or I think it's his nephew. He says, look out. And he says, you pick land which way you want to go, and I'll pick land which way I want to go. And it says in the Bible that Lot looks, and he sees towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and it looks very lush. And so being a selfish man, he says, I want the lush ground. And Abraham looks the other way, and of course, you know, it's, it's like in the Lion King where it's like the dark places where he has to go, you know. And so Abraham's like, okay, that's fine. The Lord will be faithful to me. I'll go this way. You go that way. And it's not, it's not, it's an amicable split. They're not, these two men are not angry with one another, but all of the men that are under them are angry with one another and they're going to kill each other. So they split. And Lot finds his way not to continue wandering into, into this, this promised land as God had told Abram, but instead Lot finds himself wandering straight into the city of Sodom and basically becoming infiltrated. As he gets into the culture, he does not change that culture. He becomes infiltrated by it. And so God shows up and begins to speak to Abraham and says, listen, um, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and Abraham says, okay, and Lot's there. So Abraham begins to have this dialogue with God. It's, very, it's, it's a magnificent portion of scripture. We don't have a lot of time to, to unpack it. But basically, he begins to barter with God saying, if, if there's 50 people, will you not destroy it? 50 righteous people? If I find 50 righteous men, will you not destroy it? God says, okay, I won't destroy it for 50. 
And then Abraham, knowing how wicked the world is, and particularly how wicked Sodom is, what about 40? If there's 40 righteous people, will you destroy it? Like, okay, I won't destroy it for 40. And then Abraham says, bear with me one more time. What about 30? (laughs) He keeps going down 20. He gets down to 10. And I love that at the end of the conversation, the Bible just records that after he gets to 10, uh, it says the Lord departs from him. Basically, the Lord's like, I'm done with this conversation, you know, (laughs) just leaves, you know. Well, we know the story, and the story is they couldn't find 10 righteous people. Now, what you're going to find here is when you actually get into Lot's family, it sounds like he might have had 10 people in his own family, under his own roof, and they're not even righteous. I think I recognize why. So it picks up the story here. God's on the way to destroy Sodom. Verse number one in chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate at Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. And then he may rise up and go early and go on your way. And they said, no, we're going to spend the night in the town square. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know when there's a wicked city, bad decision. You don't spend the night in the town square. And everybody knows it because you can't be outside at night in wicked cities. Okay? Let's continue, though. But he pressed them. So Lot knows this. He pressed them strongly. So they turned aside and they entered into his house and he made them a feast and he baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, now here comes the men of Sodom, both young and old, this is showing just the totality of the depravity, all the people to the last man. Now the Bible is important to record this because remember they only need 10 righteous men, right? It says every one of them, young, old, it doesn't matter what their, the diversity of the city does not matter. Every man to the last man shows up to Lot's house and they surround the house and they called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Now, because we have kids in here, you guys understand this, right? What they're asking. Verse six, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. And watch what verse eight shows you just how wicked Lot is too. He says, don't act so wickedly, men. Verse eight, behold, I have two daughters who have known no man. Let me bring them out to you and you could do what you please with them. (laughs) He looks at them and says, don't be wicked. Let me be more wicked. (laughs) Only do nothing to this men for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Listen to what they say. Verse nine, they say, stand back. And then they said, look at this fellow. He came to sojourn and now he's become the judge to us. Now we'll deal worse with you than we deal with these men. This is really deteriorating quickly. They pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. This is the angels. They bring Lot back into the house. Why are you negotiating? (laughs) They pull him back in, and they shut the door. And then they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So the angels basically just blind them. Boom. So now they're just walking around like the walking dead, groping at the door, right? Okay. Verse 12. This is where you start recognizing just how bad it's gotten. Then the men said to Lot, have you seen anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city, please bring them out of this place. For we are about to destroy this place. The outcry against the people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Listen to this. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. So they got... Blind guys all over the city, apparently every man in the city all groping around. It looks like the walking dead. The sons-in-laws are like, he's kidding. Let's continue. 
As morning dawned and the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16. But he lingered. Lot is puttering around the house. They're telling him we're about to just, they just blinded people in front of you. So it's like you should know they're serious. We're going to blow this whole place up. And it says Lot's like, well, I still need to make sure that I have everything. So the men, the angels, this is the grace of God. So the men seized him and his wife and the two daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord was being merciful to him. They bring him outside of the city. And as they brought them out, one of them, one said, escape for your life and do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. <laughs> you know what he means here by it's a little one? It's, think of it like New York City, lots of evil, lots of brokenness, and you're running from it. There's going to be destruction. He's like, Listen, it's a small city. It's probably not as bad as New York. Can I still be in the city, though? This is what he's doing. My life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape, therefore, quickly. I could do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. Okay, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot got to that city. And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Listen to this, verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of what? Salt. Okay. What in the world's going on in this text? Well, we know a lot of things, right? And I don't have time to to go through what seems to be most basic. But I want to focus on as they're leaving. They, they've been lingering. It seems, it seems to be, be making a point. The Bible seems to be trying to make the point that Lot and his sons-in-law and his daughters-in-law and his sons and even his own wife, that they had been so inculcated and entrenched in Sodom's culture that they are pulled to stay there and linger, even though they know the, the city is headed for destruction. That even though the angels are there telling them, and many of us would say, if I could only hear a word from God, then I would know what to do. No, you wouldn't. And you wouldn't probably do it because... Sometimes there is such an, a deeply entrenched bondage of the heart toward the way in which you're so accustomed to living, the life that you're so accustomed to leading, the words that you're so accustomed to saying, the relationships you're so accustomed to having that you can't do it. And that's what's happening here. Lot's lingering. The sons-in-law think he's joking. And finally, it culminates in his wife who, quote, in the Bible, is behind him. So she's lingering back. You know, it's when your kid doesn't want to leave somewhere. And you're like, hurry up. And they're kind of like kicking. This is her. Looks back and becomes a pillar of salt. Now, why salt? I think that this is not incidental. But speaking in Jesus' words, if we're called to be the salt of the earth, Israel and the people of God were called to be the salt of the earth first. And Lot's wife becomes a pillar or a monument reminding all of God's people what will become of us when our love for the world consumes us and causes us to look back in longing at the vile, destructive, and godless world that once enslaved us. That's what I see here. That when we, if we're asking how do we avoid losing our saltiness, we have to come to Lot's wife to recognize that losing your saltiness looks a lot like lingering, longing, and peering back 
at the enslaved life that you led before Christ. That if we long for the good old days and the good old days were Sodom, you're going to lose your saltiness. And for the Christian, this must be, the good old days can't be the good old days when you lived in sin apart from a redeemer. It just can't be. We simply become a block of salt in the middle of, the, in the middle of a field that's lost its purpose, longing or lingering with the patterns and the perceptions of the world, believing that there's life to be had where only death reigns is folly. That's what Jesus is after. And listen, in the Gospels, it's interesting. There's a, there's a portion of Scripture, I believe it's in the book of Luke, where Jesus is talking about, uh, he's talking to his disciples, and he tells them about what will happen in the end. And there's this one line in there where he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Why is that so significant? Because we lose our saltiness when we long for the world. And listen, this is interesting, right? Because isn't Jesus' message that God so loved the world? It's like we have this juxtaposed problem. We're supposed to love the world like God loves the world and hate the world like God hates the world because those are two different types of the world. God so loved the world, the human beings, the people that he cares for as his own children. And God so hates the world system pattern of sin and brokenness that the prince and the power of the air rules over. Those are two different things. Okay. So what I'm talking about is looking back at the world system, the whole enslavement that comes with Egypt or Sodom or whatever these cities that represent our old life. So I want to answer this question. Where have we begun to linger or long for the patterns after this world? And I have just a few that I want to run through this morning and then we'll be done. Number one, and if you're taking any notes, you can, you can jot these down. Straying after idols. Straying after idols. There seems to be an abundance amount of evidence that the church has trusted in things other than the Lord to solve the problems that we're facing today. One way to, under, to uh, figure out if you have idolatry is to ask yourself, where do I run to for hope and healing? Where do I run to for answers? Like, do I run for hope and healing to politicians or medicine or the science community or technology or social activists? Or do I run to for the answers to life? Or where am I comforted? Like, am I more comforted in Christ or am I comforted in entertainment? Am I more comforted in Christ or am I comforted in food? Am I comforted in pharmaceuticals or sexual misdeeds or am I really comforted in Christ? These are the, the questions that we might to ask ourselves to figure out if there are idolatry problems. And idolatry in the Old Testament was the sin of the children of Israel. It's what God continually comes back to. It's at the top of his list to address. When we become blind to our proneness to wander, we lose our saltiness. The children of Israel would set up high places in Israel, and then they would worship false gods in those high places. Setting up high places is a symbol for putting anything in a place of prominence in your life that is disordered, meaning anything that takes the place of God in the order of priority in your life becomes an idol. Okay, number two, we, we become hearers but not doers of the word. Hearing but not doing. James chapter 1 verse 22 tells us that those who hear the word but don't do the word end up deceiving themselves. And it seems to me that in the information age, we have not developed a deeper understanding of God and his world, even though there's more readily available for us right at our fingertips. You know, we could listen to as many podcasts as we want. The most world-renowned scholars and theologians are like on iTunes U for free. We could learn as much as we possibly would want. And yet, I don't think that that's actually what's happened. Instead, I think we've devolved into a deeper divide amongst ourselves arguing about what the Bible itself teaches. Isn't that interesting? We haven't grown more deeply in love with God. We've, we've grown apart from each other, 
arguing about who's right about finer points of theology rather than trying to dig deeper into the most basic areas of theology. It's where people argue about the Greek of love your neighbor as yourself, but they haven't learned in English how to apply it. Does that not seem like it's a problem to anyone else? We're talking like basic fundamental, the- and I'm, I'm not against this. In fact, I think we need to go even more deeply into biblical literacy, but that's next week. If we can't apply the most basic fundamental truths of the scripture, then maybe we're off base by using all of the theological tools at our hands only to fight one another over the more minute ones. We got to be careful here. In my estimation, our arguments about finer issues of theology plays directly into the hands of those who desire for Christianity to primarily be a religion with a few hot-button issues that they can poke on and will get angry at. I think there's a group of people that love that about us. They love that whenever they talk about one thing, we all rise up and begin to argue with each other about it. Instead of the church being a powerful testimony to the richness and beauty of Christ and salt to the earth. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. Number three. Forgetting prayer, forgetting prayer. And listen, I want to just make a note of this. These are all things that came from me being deeply convicted in my own life. So let's not pretend like I'm, even though I'm like, I don't know, a foot and a half above you, I feel very farther below you. Forgetting prayer. We must get back to being a people of prayer in the church. If nothing else, I want this to settle on you. The most prominent movements of God's spirit throughout human history have always been animated, jump-started, and sustained through, through powerful prayer of a few. Like the revival in Scotland started with John Knox standing up and saying, God, give me Scotland or give me death. I'm going to start a prayer meeting with me and my three friends. And that's how the revival of Scotland began. Prayer cannot simply be one ministry team in the church. It just can't be. We can't pretend like that's the plan of God, that we've got a prayer team, and so we just say, we toss all of our prayers at them because they become our high priest who we go to the prayer team so that the prayer team can go before God for us. Listen, I'm all about having a prayer team only in so much as that actually encourages the culture of prayer among God's people. They're not our high priests. Jesus is our high priest. We go directly to him. Okay, number four, sidelining the gospel. Sidelining the gospel. I talked about this a couple, of, a couple of weeks ago. I won't spend too much time on it. Nothing points to this issue more prominently than our willingness to respond to brothers and sisters in Christ who are pointing to the gospel as our rallying point for major cultural issues. And our response to them is yes, but there's gotta be more than just the gospel because the gospel's been here for a long time. We start, when we start to roll our eyes at the only hope that we have, When we pretend like we have any hope or help outside of the gospel, we will inevitably downgrade our witness and dilute any power that we ever had. We don't have anything else, friends. The gospel points to Christ, Christ being our true vine. We are the branches. If we are not in the true vine, we have no ability to bear fruit. The gospel is a message about how we can bear fruit by being in Christ. So when we say we got to go beyond Christ or beyond the gospel, we've missed the boat. There are no other answers. Number five, making spiritual compromises. Satan has been craftily dealing with humans for a very long time. He's a deal maker. It started in the, in the garden with, with uh, Adam and Eve. The deal was, let's exchange uh, God's relationship with you for you being like God through this disobedience. That's the exchange. It's the deal making. The deals that he strikes with us to compromise with his lies have always led to destruction. These spiritual compromises, they often take the form of morally neutral things. 
So sometimes we will do morally neutral things that they, they seemingly are just not a big deal. They are innocuous. And yet those morally neutral things end up being compromises to deeply spiritual things. They permit us to love someone other than God or to dishonor Jesus. Number six, and this one is one that I'd like to end on, is renegotiating instead of repenting. Renegotiating instead of repenting. Because we sidelined the gospel, we forgot that we're saved by grace alone. And so what did this lead to? It hasn't result, only resulted in a great deal of condemnation for people, although it has. It has also resulted in a great lack of repentance. Our relationship with God becomes more of a negotiated peace agreement, whereby we agree to try harder next time and do better in our failures. It's not the heart to try harder that's the real issue here. It's the heart that has contrived a religious system where God, the powerful, mighty, majestic Jesus, can be bartered with by humans like me and you. As though he's after rule following and not intimate spiritual relationship. Like what God's really after is that you would just get right your, your prayer time in the morning. It's like you missed your prayer time. Like, God, I'll do better this time. Here's the thing. I'm going to double up tomorrow. Like God's like, well, you better double up. That's what I'm really after is, is, is your five minutes. And you did four. What is this? Cheapening me. Here's how it looks. New Year's comes around. And you're like, okay, no more Netflix for a month. I'm sorry, God. I'm going to do this. It's going to be my tithe to you this year. I'm tithing my TV time to you. And listen, I'm okay with it. Like, there's good things with fasting. Don't get me wrong here. But the point here is I'm going to do this for a month so that I can, you know, because I know that I'm feeling guilty about some of, my, some of my activities in television. Do you notice what's completely lost here? Repentance because you're feeling conviction. What you're doing is circumventing repentance and trying to jump to the application. You're trying to say, let me fix this on my own. You're rushing into the fire trying to put it out, and you have a water gun. And you're like, don't worry, God, I got this. It's like a child who's trying to fix a bleeding hand and that with no Band-Aids but doesn't want to tell his parents. I cut myself. Renegotiating with God prioritizes rules and right behavior. Repenting prioritizes relationship and right worship. There's a difference, and it's massive. It's a massive difference. When we prioritize rules and right behaviors, we miss the very heart of the gospel. It's not that we're never going to get to obedience with commands. It's that that obedience to commands always comes through right relationship and right worship. There is no end around. It's the only way. And just to make sure we're attaching this to us being the salt, how could we be the salt of the earth preserving the earth if we are offering people a renegotiating contract with God and not the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus bought for them by his blood? That's the gospel. You're, you're not offering them, here, here I, I got you a second chance with God. You just got to read, no, that's not what Jesus purchased. Jesus purchased Abundant life that he's gifted to you by his grace because he absorbed abundant death. That's a totally different message. All right. Now to the warning in our close. How shall that saltiness be restored? Let's remember this in its context. Because if not, it's really discouraging. Jesus is the only one that can help. And he's saying, how are you going to fix this? Jesus does this a lot, by the way. Remember the rich young ruler conversation? He says, it's easier for a rich man to, or a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And he's talking to a very rich man. And it says the rich man basically walks away sorrowful. And all the disciples look at each other and go, who can be saved? Now you gotta love Jesus' response. What is impossible with man is possible with God. 
he's always trying to get you to the place to say, how can human beings be saved? So that then he can say, good news, I'm here. That's his point. He wants to get you to the precipice of realizing, do I have any hope? So that he can go, that's what I've been trying to get into your head. You can't fix what only I can fix. So let's walk through this. How can its saltiness be restored comment? Let's remember the context of the passage. Jesus speaks to his disciples. Who are his disciples? All Jewish men. The crowds are just listening in. Go back to Matthew 5. It says he's speaking to his disciples, knowing the crowds are listening. He speaks to all these Jewish men, and he says, Israel, who was called to be salt, and the Israelites would have known this. These Jewish men would have known about salt because salt was in every single sacrifice they were ever called to give. And he says, you were called to be salt in the earth. But what happens when salt lost its savor? It gets thrown out and trampled underneath people's feet. What are they probably remembering? Exile. They probably are remembering how Israel was treated like the doormat of the earth for a long time. And they currently are under Roman occupation. He says, so how do your saltiness get restored? I mean, that that seems impossible. The Jews that are listening, particularly the disciples, must must be thinking, how in the world can this get fixed? They got to be thinking, oh my gosh, we messed this up. I imagine this is not a new feeling for the disciples. <laughs> and then Christ is finally going to bring them to the only way that you can be restored is me. I want to give you one example of a text, Luke 22. You don't have to turn there. But Jesus, upon, gets, upon his uh, approach to Golgotha, after his prayer in Gethsemane, Judas shows up. And Judas is with a band of robbers, it says. And Judas begins to approach Jesus. And Jesus says, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss, Judas? I mean, his own friend is coming. He's going to kiss him in order to identify him to all of the band of, the band of uh, government criminals, basically. Kisses him, embraces him, and Peter is standing by. Now, Peter has just been told you're going to deny the Lord three times, and he has basically said, I will not deny you. I'll go even to death to you. He is geared up, okay? He's like, he's taking his pre-workout. You know, he's like ready. And... As soon as they go to grab Jesus, Peter, it says in one, in one uh, history of the Gospels that they had two swords. Peter was obviously entrusted with one. Peter takes the sword out of the scabbard, and he swings at one of the high priest's servants, and it says that he cuts his ear off. Jesus says, no more of this. In the book of Matthew, he says, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. But the book of Luke records something that no other gospel does. And it's, in my opinion, it is the most important portion of the passage. It says that Jesus grabs the servant's ear and heals him. And then they take him off to crucify him. Could you imagine being this guy? You're pretty much caught up, woken up in the middle of the night. You're working shift work. You go out and you're like, all right, I got to take this rabbi to jail. And then you get there and there's this weird kiss between these two guys. Seems to be pretty intense. You don't know what's going to happen. You're about to take Jesus to jail and then you get your ear cut off. And the guy who probably by all stretches of the imagination should be cheering on that ear being cut off actually says, don't do it anymore. Grabs your ear off the ground bloody and just heals you looks you in the eyes as they take him away. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The three characters, main characters in that story are who? Peter, Judas, Malchus, the servant of the high priest, and Jesus. These three represent Jesus being the restorer of all things, and these three characters, how we respond to that. See, even Judas has this opportunity, right, to, in this moment, will you betray me with a kiss? That Christ's forgiveness probably in his eyes 
He has this opportunity. He's not going to do it clearly. But notice that Peter's going to betray Jesus later on. He just did something that Jesus clearly was against. And of course, Malchus was, was just a guy that was in a band of people trying to kill Jesus. Jesus heals and restores Malchus's ear. He heals and restores Peter at the side of the beach later on. And yet Judas, the unrepentant man, the man unwilling to acknowledge his betrayal, hangs himself. I'm convinced we're going to see the revival of power and influence in the church in its best sense when we stop running from our identity and instead run back to Christ, the restorer of all broken things. I'm hopeful that we're going to see a great movement of God's spirit, but it's not going to come by earthly force. We won't be doing it by cutting the servant of the high priest's ear off. When we finally embrace our life of self-denial, we'll see God's hand move in the earth. And so here's what I want to pray for us this morning. I want us to humbly come open-handed to Jesus. He knows us. He loves us. He cares for us. He recognizes our own tendency to be more like Lot's wife and less like the angels in that story. And he is not only willing, but able to restore us again. The question, how shall its saltiness be restored, could better be put, come to me that I might restore your saltiness. It's a tongue-in-cheek rhetorical. How can saltiness be restored? It can't apart from the supernatural hand of God. And so this morning, my prayer for you is that you might come open-handedly to Jesus. Not be like Judas, refusing to acknowledge where you're not salty. But come to him humbly that he might restore what has gone wrong. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Jesus, your words can cut, but they cut like the wounds of a friend. Faithful. We thank you that, Lord, your words are sharp just enough like a scalpel to heal that which is cancerous in us. We thank you, Jesus, that you do not mince words, but you're willing to tell us what we need to hear, not what we think we ought to hear. And so, Holy Spirit, now would you help us to apply those words? to come open-handedly and humbly before you, to recognize our own sinful patterns, to recognize how much we're like Lot's wife, lingering and looking back, to recognize the words of come thou fount that our hearts are prone to wander and we sense and feel it. God, as we sing now, would you bring freedom to us? As we worship you with our mouths, may it also be our hearts that open in worship so that we would not be just hearers, but not doers, deceiving ourselves, but hearers and doers also, God. Help us to be the salt of the earth. Restore to us the saltiness that only you can give, we ask in Jesus' name.